Today's scripture reading comes from 1 John chapter 5, verses 6 through 12. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not only by water, but by water and blood. And this is the spirit who bears witness, because the spirit is truth. For there are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit. And these three are one. And there are three that bear witness on earth the spirit, the water, and the blood, and these three agree as one. If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater, for this is the witness of God, which he has testified of his Son. He who believes in the Son of God has the witness in himself. He who does not believe God has made him a liar, because he has not believed the testimony that God has given of his Son. And this is the testimony, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life, and he who does not have the Son of God does not have life. Hmm. You know, I'm so glad that we have God's testimony. So much easier to preach with authority <laughs> when we know that God's Word is true and we can stand on it and everything else has to budge when it comes to God's Word, because His Word is not going to. So we're going through 1 John. We're almost at the end. We've got probably about three more messages, including about three today and two more to complete 1 John. When John began writing this very strong letter about the certainties we have in our faith because of who Jesus is, he began with his own testimony concerning Jesus. You remember back in chapter 1, verse 1, that which was from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life, referring to, of course, Jesus Christ. And now as he begins to wrap up his letter, he switches it up to focus on God's own testimony concerning Jesus, verse 10, the testimony God has given about His Son. Now, it's very important, uh, very important for us to keep that point in mind, God's testimony, because that will help us determine the meaning of some of the difficult topics that John brings up here in this passage. Now, God's testimony to His Son is not unique to this letter. I mean, the, the gospel that he wrote, the gospel of John, is full of the Father's testimony from the beginning to the end. It's all concerning uh, pointing out the deity of Jesus Christ. Throughout the gospel, that testimony is made clear through the phenomenal miracles that, Je that Jesus did that are recorded there, through the titles which are given to him, the great I am passages that run all the way through the Gospel of John. Of course, uh, the Gospel of John starts with that great statement in the very first verse, in the beginning was a word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. And then down in verse 14, he says, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. And then John, at the end of his gospel writing, stated the purpose for which he wrote, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So you see, the gospel was written to bring people to salvation. John's letters 
to the churches are written to assure us of our salvation. But John switches now to the Father's own testimony to his Son. Now, this isn't the first time that we see the Father's witness to the Son. In fact, it's throughout the whole Bible. That's what the Bible is. If you go from Genesis all the way through to Revelation, the Old Testament is full of testimony from God as to the coming of His Son. And if the Jews had carefully and accurately interpreted the Old Testament, it would have been very easy for them to affirm that this Jesus was indeed the fulfillment of all those prophecies. Born in Bethlehem, born to a virgin, born in the Lion of David, both through his earthly father Joseph and his mother Mary, raised in Galilee, given divine power, having been rescued, as it were, out of Egypt, having spent a couple of years there to avoid the slaughter, having been declared to be the Messiah by the last of the Old Testament prophets, John the Baptist. If they had been watching what was going on, they would have known exactly to whom the testimony of God related. It was all there in the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. And then when the New Testament finally arrives to write the record of the Messiah, that then becomes God's testimony. The Gospels are God's witness to His Son as He lived His perfect life with power and wisdom. The book of Acts is God's witness to the power of the truth of His Son as, as His words begins moving throughout the world. And then the epistles, the letters, are, are God's testimony to the meaning of life, of death, of resurrection, of, of the second coming of His Son. And the book of Revelation is a culmination of God's redemptive purpose and plan for His Son. So the whole New Testament is God's witness to His Son. And if we deny the New Testament and the record that God has given of His Son... We're calling God a liar. We're going to come to that in a minute. And we're stepping into some very, very dangerous territory because that is the blasphemy of all blasphemies when we totally reject God. Now, before we dig into our passage here, let me give you a little side note that's important to see what God is doing here in this passage. In the tradition of the Jews coming from the Old Testament, how many witnesses did it take to confirm something to be true? Two or three. It goes all the way back to Deuteronomy, chapter 19, verse 15, where God established that a matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. And then Jesus instituted that in a disciplined situation in the life of the church as well, in Matthew 18, that anything brought against someone needed to have the affirmation of two or three witnesses. And then Paul, writing to Timothy, said the same thing, but this time directed this towards, uh, towards your pastor or elders. Listen, in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 19, he writes, Do not entertain... Do not even listen to an accusation against an elder, which would include a pastor because he's one of the elders, unless it is brought by two or three witnesses. You should never allow anyone to bring accusations against your pastor or elders unless it's confirmed by two or three other witnesses. A matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. And the importance of that is we see that happening in our culture today. One lie. One person could say something and destroy a person's life. God said that should not be. And here in our passage, God provides three witnesses. 
He's keeping his, to his own word. He provides three witnesses in John's great summary. 1 John chapter 5, verses 6 through 8 here says, There is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And the three are in agreement. Clear? We can go home? I always wondered about that passage. I'm glad I had to preach on it. The greatest testimony ever given to Christ comes from God, without question. So here's a question. Why should we believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? Why should we believe that He is God, that He's a second member of the Trinity, that He is eternal, that He's eternally perfect, that He is uncreated? Why should we believe that? I mean, His contemporaries, Jesus' contemporaries, when Jesus was walking this earth, called Him a liar, called Him a deceiver. They implied that He was a drunkard. They identified him as a fake, as an insurrectionist, a rebel, a lawbreaker, a fanatic, a madman, demon-possessed. That's what the popular culture thought about him. At best, uh, yeah, he's a good teacher. The Jews today don't believe it. They never have. Why then should we? Why then should we believe that He is God the Son, second member of the Trinity, promised Messiah, possessor and giver of eternal life, Savior of sinners? Answer, because of the infallible, incontrovertible, unassailable testimony of God Himself. And that takes us to our text. We have the witness of God Himself. I want to break this witness down into three parts that John gives us here. Remember, this is God's testimony. We need to keep that point in mind. Verse 6, this is the one, referring, of course, to Jesus Christ, who came by water and blood, and then verse 7, and it is the Spirit who testifies. Now, what does it mean that He came by water and blood? We, I think we get the Spirit part, right? But the water and blood stuff. Some have said that that points to when Jesus was on the cross and the soldier pierced his side with a spear and water and blood came out of his side. It's got to be what it's uh, pointing to. But there's no reason really to interpret it that way because that was a physical phenomenon that took place that proved that he was dead. There was no particular divine witness to anything in that. How could that be considered a witness of God? Then there's a second view that has gained some popularity, that this refers to the two ordinances of the church that we practice, water referring to baptism and blood referring to the communion service with a cup representing the blood of Christ. But I don't see that as a possibility either. In fact, I think it's quite a stretch in my opinion, because both of these are things that we do to testify to what the Lord has done in our lives. Baptism is our testimony to the world of our death and resurrection spiritually in Christ. And when we partake of the communion elements, Paul tells us that when we do this, what? We proclaim the Lord's death till He comes. These then are both our affirmation, baptism and communion, our affirmation of the work of Christ. It's not God's. The third view, and I don't see any other way to interpret this correctly, is 
the water here refers to the baptism of Christ. And the blood refers to his death on the cross. Let me explain. First of all, God gave testimony to his son at his baptism. That's the water. If we go back to Matthew chapter 3, where the baptism happened, we read, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. This was kind of the height of John the Baptist's baptizing ministry. And his baptism was a baptism of repentance because this was his message. He was a strong, hard preacher. He preached on sin and repentance. He called the people to repent, to confess their sin, and to ask God to cleanse them. And to make a public affirmation of that, he told them that they needed to be baptized which was an outward way to symbolize what they wanted God to do on the inside. You see, baptism at that point, John's baptism, didn't have the meaning that it does now, the baptism that we practice. Why? Because Christ hadn't died yet. He certainly hadn't risen from the dead yet. What made John's baptism so very unique was that that particular baptism baptism was used only for Gentiles. You see, Jews weren't baptized. They were circumcised. They were born into Israel, born into the family of Abraham. They didn't have to be baptized. But when a Gentile wanted to become a part of the Jewish community, and there were many of those, they had to go through a baptism. They had to go through a cleansing process because they were viewed, just because who they were, as unclean. They were not Jew. They were unclean. And this concept came from the Old Testament when a Jew became unclean by touching a dead animal or a number of different things that are listed there in the Old Testament. There was a particular washing or cleansing ceremony that the Jews had to go through to be considered clean. So John took this one step further. John the Baptist, part of the reason why his ministry was so shocking. John preached that they were not talking about the Jews, were not necessarily physically unclean on the outside, but because of their sin, they were internally unclean. They were spiritually unclean. And he was telling them, the Jews, that they had to see themselves as no better than Gentiles. Can you imagine? They had to see themselves as unclean and come to make a public confession of their uncleanness and be willing to be baptized like an outcast if they wanted to be part of the Messiah's kingdom. That's a huge step for those folks. And it's while John is doing that that Jesus comes from Galilee where he had been with his disciples and he wants to be baptized by John. But we read, John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you and, you, and do you come to me? He said, you, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? Jesus was not new to John. John was his cousin. Remember? Elizabeth's son. Mary's sister. John knew who Jesus was, born of the Virgin Mary, Aunt Mary. And John was shocked when Jesus came to him and he said, Jesus, this is all messed up. You've got this all wrong. You've, you've got it. I, I'm the sinner. You're not. I need to be baptized by you. By you. Uh, you don't need to be baptized by me. But Jesus replied, let it be so now. Let it happen, John, at this time. Why? Because it is proper for us to do this to fulfill all 
righteousness. Jesus was saying, even though there is no sin in me to repent of, John, and there's no need for me to be washed on the inside, God requires of this of all his people, and I would do all that God requires. I would do it in order to fulfill all righteousness. Whatever it is that God requires of his people, because I have become one with the people, I will do. Now remember, he was fully human as well as fully God at that point, and he obeyed God's law in full. That was the perfection of his life. And so he says, I must fulfill all righteousness. God requires it, I will do it. Verse 15 says, then John consented. And as soon as Jesus was baptized, verse 16, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was open, and he saw the Spirit of God. John saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him, on Jesus. Now, John saw the Holy Spirit come down. He did not see a dove come down. The Holy Spirit didn't come as a dove. Um, He was descending as a dove might descend upon Jesus. And then verse 17 says, And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. And there it is. God's testimony of his Son at the water. God's direct testimony at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Now, don't think that this was some way Jesus receiving the Holy Spirit as we think of uh, us asking and, uh, and receiving the Holy Spirit. This is not because Jesus was void of the Holy Spirit up until that point. He is God, never was anything less than God. But this, is, uh, but this was for John to see, the, John the Baptist to see the affirmation of the Spirit of God and the affirmation of God the Father. This is the Messiah, fully qualified, fully affirmed, fully satisfying God the Father and God the Spirit. John had been told by God, that this was going to happen, what, what to expect. Over in Luke chapter 3, people were wondering if John was the Messiah, right? Are you the Messiah? And John was very quick to answer them, I baptize you by water, but one who is more powerful than I will come, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So this was God's testimony to John. This is the one who I was telling you about, God saying to John, this is my beloved son, whom I am well pleased. So the Father's witness then, back to 1 John for a minute, the Father's witness then begins, at, in John's view, as, as he views it, with the water. This is the one who came by water, the first one to bear witness, the water, at the baptism. The second to bear witness, John writes, is the blood. And this is the testimony of the Father that occurred at the death of Jesus. When Jesus died on the cross... There were a number of things that took place that indicated the divine hand of God at that time. And we see a lot of that in Matthew 27. If if you recall our trek through Matthew, thank you, (laughs) we talked about some of those things as we came to this passage in Matthew 27. There, There in that chapter, Jesus is on the cross, the end of his earthly ministry now. Okay, the baptism beginning crosses the end of his earthly ministry. When Jesus died on the cross, there were a number of things that took place that indicated that the divine hand. Um, we're told from noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over the land. Boom. High noon. 
brightest time of the day, a supernatural darkness takes place, and it is total. The word for darkness is a word that means night darkness. It's also the word that describes a person's total blindness. It was that dark. It wasn't just a dimming with the clouds or something to do with an eclipse here. This was a divine miracle. This was God intervening at that point. And Jesus knows that at 3 o'clock, just while it was still dark, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He understood the symbolism of the darkness. The sin of the world was upon him. It was an indication of the forsaking of God. God was giving testimony to His Son as a sin-bearing sacrifice by plunging the earth into darkness. That was God's hand, none other. And if you go down to verse 51 in that same chapter, at that moment the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. That couldn't have been done by men. Far too high, far too heavy. God, while Jesus is crying out with a loud voice and yielding up His Spirit, dying, God rips the veil of the temple from top to bottom, which, of course, throws open the Holy of Holies because Jesus had provided access now to His presence and abolishing the priesthood and the separation from God. That, too, was a divine miracle. Then the earth shook, the rocks split, the tombs broke open, the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. My goodness. What an astonishing assortment of miracles. Darkness, the veil torn from top to bottom, ripped by the very power of God. The earth begins to shake, the rocks split, tombs are open, dead saints are raised. They come out of their tombs and after the resurrection enter the holy city and appear to many. Then I love what verse 54 says. When the centurion and those with him, there are a number of soldiers that are around about there, when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed what? Surely, this was God's Son. There's no other conclusion. Not only centurion, but all those with him. Here was God's testimony at the cross. Surely, he was God's Son. And of course, you've got Old Testament prophecy. Psalm 22, Isaiah 50, 53, just name a couple of them. Thousand years before Christ, before crucifixion was ever even thought of, had not been used. Psalm 22 is a detailed prophetic psalm of what was going to take place at the cross. All my bones are out of joint as he hung there on the cross. My heart is melted within me. My tongue cleaves to my jaws. He was, he was thirsty. Dogs have surrounded me, all the hecklers that are around the cross. A, hand, a band of evildoers have encompassed me. They pierce my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look, they stare at me. They divide my garments among them for my clothing. They cast lots. All God's testimony is all that took place at the cross. And then, of course, there he hangs on the cross in perfect fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 53, where it says he has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. 
He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, face, he was despised. He did not esteem him. Then it goes on to say, surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. That's why he cried out, my God, my God, why are you you forsaking me? But he was pierced for our transgression, pierced with nails, pierced with thorns, pierced with the spear. By his hands, we, uh, wounds, we are healed. Uh, he, the, the whipping that he received, the blows to his face, and the subsequent piercings. And the Lord laid on him the iniquity, the horrible sin of us all. And in verse 9, we're told he was assigned to a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Isaiah had no idea what he was talking about there, but now we now know that he was buried in the tomb owned by Joseph of Arimathea, a very rich man. A tiny detail, just a tiny, tiny detail, but in its minuteness, showing the omniscience and sovereignty of God. There is no other conclusion than all of this is a testimony of the Father, fulfilling prophecy and the physical phenomena that is so convincing that a Roman centurion and soldiers with him said, truly, this was the Son of God. You want to know about Jesus? (laughs) Accept the testimony of God the Father at his baptism, at the beginning of his ministry, and the testimony of God the Father at his death at the end of his ministry. But there is that third source of testimony here that John shares with us, and that's a testimony given by the Holy Spirit. Back to verse 6 of 1 John 5. It is the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and all three are in agreement. This is actually the most obvious, because the Spirit testified about Jesus throughout his lifetime. Jesus was conceived in the womb of Mary as an act of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, so the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. And then when the Lord Jesus began His ministry, it was the Holy Spirit who led Him. You remember immediately after His baptism, it says, At once the Spirit sent Him out into the wilderness, and He was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And then we know that Jesus was empowered by the Holy Spirit so that everything He did was done by the Holy Spirit through Him. In, uh, Peter, in his sermon in Acts chapter 10, says, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power. And how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. He humbled himself. He emptied himself and did the will of the Father by the power of the Holy Spirit. Luke chapter 4 tells us that Jesus returned from the wilderness, from the uh, time of temptation. He returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. Now, normally the second person of the Trinity doesn't need to be energized by the third person of the Trinity. Because he himself is God. But that's part of the self-emptying that Jesus was willing to do. He made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And it was the power of the Spirit that came through him to do all that he did and to say all that he said. 
In fulfilling the prophecy of Isaiah, it says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Remember, Jesus quoted that in the temple. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He anointed me to preach. It's the power of the Holy Spirit that gave Him the power to preach. Jesus was literally the perfect divine vessel through whom the will of the Father was done by the Holy Spirit. All the miracles that Jesus did were done by the Spirit's power. That's why in Matthew 12, Jesus says, If you deny my miracles, you blaspheme the Holy Spirit. Anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, he said. So you see, the witness of the water and the witness of the blood and the witness of the Holy Spirit all come together in total agreement. And the testimony still exists with us today because the Holy Spirit did one other thing. He inspired the writing down of the record of all the Father's testimony. And we have that in our hands today. So the Father gave his testimony to Jesus' baptism. He gave his testimony at his death. And it was the Father who sent the Spirit to empower Jesus to perform the miraculous signs and wonders and to speak with such astounding wisdom. But we come back to the question, but why? Why did he give this testimony? Well, we see his purpose in verse 11 there in our passage. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. The reason that God gives this witness is because God has provided eternal life, and this life is only in His Son. Last Sunday, we talked about one of the promises that's awaiting for us as overcomers, the eating of the tree of life when we get to paradise. God's provided a way, and He wants to convince people that this is a way and they can have this. The purpose of God's testimony through the water and the blood and the Spirit, the purpose of all of God's testimony throughout the New Testament is that we might have eternal life, and this life is in His Son. And down in verse 20, John writes, We know that the Son of God has come. How do we know that? Because of the testimony of God, which is now recorded on the pages of inspired Scripture. We know also, John says, that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding. The understanding, as we know, only comes from the Holy Spirit, so that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true by being in His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. It always comes back to eternal life. That's the whole purpose, eternal life. And at the end of verse 11, it says, and this life is in His Son. That, folks, is the exclusivity of the gospel. The gospel is both inclusive and exclusive at the same time. John 3.16, for God so loves the world, inclusive. The world. That whoever believes in Him, believes in Him, exclusive has eternal life. Here in our passage, verse 12, whoever, inclusive, has the Son, has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God, exclusive, does not have life. Elsewhere we read, there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we might be saved. Only the name of Jesus. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and life. And he opens up to anybody. But no man comes to the Father 
but my, but my me. There is only one way. And God's witness is, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. This is my son. Hear him. Believe in him. He is the promised Messiah. He is the king. He is the redeemer. He is the Savior. He is the only source of eternal life. Life is in Him. And this is the purpose of God's witness. God wants to give us eternal life. Then as we wrap this up, let's let's look at the responses to God's witness. And there are two. Back to verse 10. Whoever believes in the Son of God accepts this testimony. Whoever does not believe God has made him out to be a liar because they have not believed the testimony God has given about his son. So the first response, of course, is to accept the testimony. To accept the testimony. The the actual Greek phrase used and, and translated here as accept this testimony very literally says, whoever believes in the Son of God has the witness in himself has the witness in himself. This, this, and this may be where we get the concept of accepting Jesus Christ as Lord. Having the witness in us refers to having believed, having accepted the truth, and standing on the truth, and believing that truth of God's testimony, that Jesus is who God says he is, and Jesus is the truth. And if we accept that testimony and that truth is in us, then John says he abides in us and we abide in him. And it's a permanent, eternal belief. Very simply put, you who believe have received eternal life in Christ. I've never been more sure of my salvation than I have as we've gone through this, uh, this letter of 1 John. And that's the response God's looking for, acceptance. That's why he did everything. The other response, of course, is to reject the testimony of God. Anytime you reject someone's testimony, you're saying you don't believe them, right? And basically, you're calling them out as liars. Same applies here. Whoever does not believe God has made him out to be a liar because they have not believed the testimony God has given about his son. The reason people reject Christ is because they don't believe the testimony of God. They've made God out to be a liar. That sounds harsh, but that's the reality of it. Listen, and this is important. God said Christ is his son. He said he is the only source of eternal life. To deny that he is a son or that he is the only source of eternal life is to make God out to be a liar, and that is to be guilty of the greatest blasphemy possible. Blaspheming the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is truth, and we're calling him out as a liar. The Spirit is truth and is God's witness. If we reject that truth, we are lost forever. Jesus speaking to the Pharisees who were saying that Jesus was using the power of the prince of demons. He basically a, a demon-possessed. said in Matthew chapter 12, verse 22, anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. Okay, he's talking about his human nature that he took on. But anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. All of eternity. That, folks, is the unpardonable sin. But that's not God's heart. That's not God's heart. It wasn't His heart in the Old Testament. In Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 11, God says, Say to them, As surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. 
None. But rather that they turn from their ways and live. Turn, God says, turn from your evil ways. Why will you die, people of Israel? It certainly isn't his purpose in the New Testament. In Matthew 18, 14, Jesus says, Your Father in heaven is not willing, it is not his will, that any of these little ones should perish. He never planned it that way. That's not what he wanted. So God provided his own testimony so that whoever believes in the name of Jesus will be saved. Why did God do it? For God so loved the world. that He gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him, what? Shall not perish. Shall not perish. That's the reason, that's the purpose, but have eternal life. And that's how John concludes this section there in verse 12. Whoever has a son has life. It's simple. But whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. And that's tragic. That's what he said back in the beginning of Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 12, right? Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, for God so loved the world. Your love never fails. It never gives up, never runs out on me, and I never, ever have to be afraid because one thing remains, your love. Father, thank you for your love. Thank you for your love. You've got us. Though we don't understand sometimes things that, uh, that take place in our lives, your love never fails. You see past, present, you see future. And you are working plans out for us. You promise that for those who love you. Your will is good, pleasing, and perfect as we submit to you. Father, thank you. Thank you for your abounding love. In Jesus' name, amen.